the chance for a Citizens Congress, the chance to continue the work already started, the chance to provide a different kind of voice in the state capitol. From News Talk 94.1 and Lake Rock 95.9, your chance to hear where the candidates stand, their background, their interests, election 2020. Meet the candidates. Tonight, the two candidates for District 40 in the State House of Representatives will also meet the Democratic candidate for U.S. House of Representatives. We're glad you're with us. Meet the candidates is your preparation for Election Day. It's your chance to hear where the candidates stand on the issues, the things that are important to them, a chance to find out who they are beyond sound bites and social media posts and ads in the newspaper or signs along the roadway. Tonight we introduce you to the candidates for District 40, representing Smith, Trousdale, DeKalb, and Sumner Counties. The incumbent is Terry Lynn Weaver. Terry Lynn Weaver, good to have you with us on Meet the Candidates. Yes, it's good to be with you, Larry. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. So uh, why do you want to return to Nashville? Well, let's see. That's about million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, um, Larry, uh, first and foremost, I enjoy working for the people of the, I call them the fabulous 40th folks. Um, they, um, I enjoy serving. I enjoy being a part of discussions that um, bring results. They don't come as quickly as I would like them to come in a lot of ways, um, but then that's a good thing that they don't. It's just a process. So I want to return to continue uh, what we have done since my tenure here, uh, serving the people, and that is, you know, making Tennessee a star state and a state that other states in the nation can come to and look to and see how we've done it. So, and Tennessee is leading in a lot of those ways. And I want to return to continue that process. There's a few things I'd like to see accomplished in my in my little sandbox of passions. So um, I'm hoping that the folks will uh, continue their confidence and trust in me as we approach this election cycle. Gosh, it's in the next few days. And then, of course, a new brand new session will start in January. If you look back over the things that, that you have done, while you have been in Nashville, are there one, two, three things that, you know, that maybe you are most proud of? Yes, um, I'm very proud of the fact where I have, um, I, I really was one of the stakeholders, one of the people that brought in the right people to talk and how we could eliminate an egregious tax that we called the death tax. It's the inheritance tax. And Tennessee, uh, we led the way in removing that from our state. It's totally done. Where there is no inheritance tax, and I live in a rural area where a lot of farms, and uh, of course, farming the family property is handed down, and a lot of families, uh, their children could not afford the taxes paid when their their parents passed on, and I found that egregious and horrible. And that they were put a, a burden to pay a tax on something that has been taxed numerous times already. I'm very proud of that. I worked with Art Laffer. Uh, Laffer. Are you familiar with the Laffer curve? Yes. 
Um, I worked with him, brought him to the table, and developed a friendship with him. And we were able to to show the governor at that time, which was Bill Haslam, to not look at revenues lost um, through this inheritance tax, but look at revenues gained by people coming here to retire and coming here to leave their their property with their children and therefore have more money to spend in other areas and investment. So it really, the numbers started picking up. And of course, as you, you can see, Tennessee is busting at the seams, people wanting to live here. It's because we have a low tax base and we have a lot of history of financial common sense that has placed Tennessee um, in a very, very, very good spot. And I'm my tenure and my position and my, um, oh, what I bring to the table has, has brought us to this point. So I'm very grateful for that. Let's talk education for just a second. And, and let's put COVID aside because we know that there are a whole bundle of issues uh, related to that. Um, mm-hmm. Is the state doing all that it needs to do to ensure that we're educating our young people? Well, I serve on the Education Committee. I've served on it all but one term of my my tenure, and now I'm back. <laughs> and so to answer your question, um, I, I am of the opinion that we need to concentrate on reading, writing, and arithmetic. And once we get that right, then we can move from there. And to answer your question, um, there's been a lot, there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of been, there's been a lot of money put into education, but unfortunately our results, I guess if you would say if you're investing money in something, you, you want to know what's your return. Our investment and our return are not good, especially when it comes to reading. And we have had, we've had some very, uh, good things in place, like for instance, I'll give you an example of Read to Be Ready was doing very well. It was doing great. Uh, The teachers liked it. Kids were improving in their literacy. And all of a sudden, bop, we just changed course and we want to do something different. I'm not in favor of that kind of thing. I'm I'm of the old school where, Larry, if something's working, uh, why change it? And another thing, in order for you to see that it's working, you've got to give it some time to develop. And a lot of times, we uh, we intercept that and we end something before we really give it time to take hold. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so in that regard, we're not doing well according to the facts that are giving to us. You know, they say we're at a 37% literacy rate, but again, I'm not so sure those numbers are correct either. So we've, we've got to work on our communication between the department of education and the education committee, because right now uh, we're just having a communication problem, and we've got to fix that. I want to fix that in this next session. You know, the education committee is is members who are number one. We're passionate about our classrooms, our teachers, where we're going, but also um, we are the ones. For instance, I tour my schools, Larry, every two years. So I feel I got a pretty good heartbeat of what's going on in the classroom. Um, and we have some amazing teachers. Teacher Teaching is a call. You surely don't want to do it for the money because you sure don't make a lot there. But they do it for the call and the investment in our kids for the future. 
So we are the ones that are, we get the brunt of if it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And my concern and what I want to fix is that the education committee becomes more relevant and more involved in the decision making because as it is, we are not. We are basically given a budget, up or down. Uh, we are told how this this contract's going to be that, and, and I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not happy with that, and I'm surely not happy with content, and that's one of my biggest beats right now. What our kids are reading and what they're being indoctrinated with. How, and, uh, how about the assessment part? Um, and we have, over the years, Larry, we have eliminated uh, the amount of testing. Uh, we all, every one of us, want to want to know, want to be accountable. We want to know if what we're doing is doing well. So, to me, though, and uh, I mean, when I was in school, my teacher knew where where Terry Lynn was in her math, which wasn't really very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, she would know because that just wasn't my gift. It drove my dad nuts because he's he's an engineer, and so. <laughs> Um, but the point I want to make is a good teacher knows where their children are. And a, get, and a good teacher wants to have those children do well because that shines well on her. So I think we got to get off the point of teaching to a test and allow a teacher to, and this has always been my echo, we allow the teacher to do what she does best in that classroom, to be creative and help her kids learn Um there are some tests like your ACT. I mean, that test is what colleges look at to see, you know, entrance, entrance uh, for kids going into college. So, again, my point is assessments are good to, to find out where you are. But the teaching to the test is the kids are not, are not learning. They're memorizing for a test. That's not good. That's not good at all. So we've got to change that. Terry Lynn Weaver is with us on Meet the Candidates as we talk about some of the issues that uh, you will decide your vote on uh, Tuesday. Economic development certainly has happened across the Upper Cumberland, and that is good to see. One of the parts of that is making sure that it is a positive business environment. Uh, Do you feel like that Tennessee as a state has done that in terms of regulations and those sorts of things? Oh, yeah. I I think we have created... A fabulous climate for for businesses to come here and to grow and to uh, and to prosper. I mean, we have we have done we have done a lot of uh, multiple tax cuts. Of course, I, I mentioned to you the inheritance tax. Inheritance tax that was big time. Uh, a gift tax we got rid of that. The pro, uh, pro, professional privilege tax um, reductions on broadband. We got rid of the hall tax. I mean, we're doing things in our economy. I call it less is more. Less taxing, more money in your pocketbook, more money to invest. We we have an attitude in our state, um, less government intrusion. Get out of the way. And I really try to to keep that in my lens while looking at legislation. My first thing I'm going to ask is how much is this going to cost to our small businesses? Is this more government? Is this less government? It, will this benefit the people I represent? So I think we have done some very good things to have a climate that says, yes, we're open for business. 
in my district alone, um, I actually partnered with ECD to secure somewhere around 54 projects totaling something like over 6,000 jobs and to bring private capital investment of over a million dollars to billion dollars to my district. So again, I think we're well positioned and we'll continue to rally and, and, uh, say big, a big billboard say Tennessee is open for business. When someone goes to the poll Tuesday and casts a ballot, what do you want them to think about when they see your name there? Well, I want them to to think that I work for them, I serve them, um, I take their voice to the Capitol. I want them to know that when I walk into the chamber and I sit at the desk, that I I see their faces. I know a lot of, I know so many of people in my district. I want them to know that they can call me. They can call my cell phone number, which I don't have an office in my district. I'm sitting at my office. It's in my office in my home because <laughs> we, my husband and I are self-employed. So I just want them to know that they can trust me, that I'll always be honest with them. And if I can't do anything, I will tell them, but I'll find somebody who can because I certainly don't know everything about all the issues. But uh, I will do what I can to put them in the position where they, they can get their questions or their concerns answered. So I would hope that when they go to vote for me, they would see me as a helper, an ally, and someone who believes in strongly in our Tennessee values and our uh, Constitution. Terry Lynn Weaver, state representative, candidate in the 40th District. The fabulous 40, as she calls it. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. You're welcome, and thank you for calling me, Larry. Have a blessed day. Going inside the race for District 40, State House. Meet the Candidates continues as we visit with Patty Sizemore, candidate for District 40 House. Patty Sizemore, thank you for being with us. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. Why make this run? Well, when I was looking at the the landscape, the political landscape here in Smith County, I noticed that our current state representative had been unopposed in 2018. And prior to noticing that, I was just looking more local. I was thinking, well, maybe I'll run for Alderman, City Council, something like that, you know. Uh, But I just, I, I couldn't, after doing my research, allow her to run unopposed again. So that's why I went and got my... 25 signatures right on the dot, and I'm on the ballot. How difficult a decision is it to throw your hat in the ring, so to speak? This year it was extremely difficult because uh, the COVID pandemic had just started. We still didn't even call it COVID at the time. And uh, I was sort of late to the game. So it was mid-March, and and I I needed to go get – 25 valid signatures here uh, when people didn't even want to, you know, talk to anybody face to face. There was a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of stuff we didn't know at the time. Uh, but, but that was the most difficult part about it. And like I said, I ended up with 25 valid signatures right on the dot and, uh, it, it, it was, it was difficult, but I'm glad I did it. And, uh, I think we've come a long way this year, uh, you know, put, putting up a pretty strong challenge, uh, 
well, at least much stronger than unopposed. <laughs> what is the challenge of running as an independent? I, I wouldn't say the challenge goes beyond financial considerations for the most part. Um, and I think we saw firsthand that when you look at uh, Marquita Bradshaw running up against James Mackler, you know, he, he had a pretty substantial nest egg. And as far as I know, she didn't have much more than, uh, you know, somewhere eight, eight to eight, somewhere between eight and twenty thousand dollars. So, so the main consideration is financial. Um, <clears throat> but getting on the ballot was difficult as well because, uh, I, I had to go around and make sure I got my own signatures. Whereas if you have that party infrastructure, they, they can, they sort of have, a uh, an, an express lane in a sense for, for a lot of the, uh, uh just sort of the, the, the typical things that you have to do to be involved in politics. What is your background? Well, I come uh, come from Eastern Kentucky originally, and my parents are both musicians. They brought me down to, to Nashville. So uh, I've lived in Tennessee since I was a little boy. Uh, went to uh, schools in Sumner County, uh, elementary, middle, and high school. And then I went to Tennessee Tech, where I studied history and French and uh, opened a Family business with my mother, opened a little daycare business, uh, went and got my master's degree in a little-known field known as industrial organizational psychology. Are, are you familiar with that <laughs> by any chance? No, I've heard of it, but I'm okay. not sure I can tell you what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I just tell people it's sort of like an MBA without the accounting, uh, just sort of the psychology of people in the workplace. Uh, so I went from that uh, to uh, to work in the as a consultant at various different places or working in uh, sort of the uh, back-end data stuff. So I went, went to Goodwill Industries working in nonprofits. I worked in the hospitality, uh, hospitality industry with those hotels. Uh, and then I went and worked with uh, the largest payroll company, ADP, most recently. And I've also done other consulting work uh, with, with other, other large, large corporations. So, so in a lot of ways, uh, I consider myself just sort of a, uh, you know, a white collar guy who's willing to get his khakis dirty. So, you know, I've worked uh, jobs all throughout the, the spectrum, from the from all the way up to the top, all the way down to the bottom at the lumber yard, uh, whatever I had to do to pay the bills. I want to focus for a moment on on some of that background that you had in daycare and education overall, because it appears that's something that's very important to you. How would you grade the state's performance in education right now? Well, I, I hate to give people a failing grade uh, because I, I always like to think we can we can pass. Uh, maybe I'd go with somewhere around a around a, a C minus D. Um, there, there's many things that we do about as well as we can in a lot of the areas, but but there are other things uh, like the whole the whole voucher debate that wants to take funds out of our public schools or the the fact that uh, so many of our teachers make less than $40,000 a year. And in my opinion, that should be the, the bare minimum, even if you're a new teacher. Um, we, we have sort of a, a conflated issue as well with uh, rural broadband and uh, how that affects education, especially with virtual learning. Uh, we, we have issues with, uh, with standardized testing, and we have, we have constant disagreements about... Uh, about how that should be implemented, how we should actually assess our students. Um, I'm not outright failing us because we are making some progress as far as things like, uh, you know, the, with the lottery scholarship that we, we started uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, 
and uh, we're we're allowing people to go back and and get community college. They can go to trade school, uh, no matter what the, what their age these days, and that's a step in the right direction. But but there's always room for improvement in, in many many ways. I must admit that I have been surprised during COVID uh, of just the number of places in the Upper Cumberland that do not have access to broadband, that don't have access to consistent Internet service. Does the state need to do more in that regard? I think we, we uh, either the state does or, or there has to and, – and this is the, the problem we talk about, you know, what does the state of Tennessee need to do more of? Because we, we're dealing with a Republican supermajority that wants – that their standpoint is explicitly uh, – you know, you all just figure it out at the local level. They want it to be figured out at the household level if they, if they had their preference. They don't want it to go at the county, the city. They want each individual person at their house to figure it out, and that's just their mentality. Um, if, if possible, I, I think it would be great if the state could, to, could work with uh, private industry, uh, if, if some of the monopolies that uh, are in the larger metro areas didn't have such a hold uh, like like with Comcast in Nashville, and uh, I think there's Twin Lakes. There's so there's so many different companies, and and they're all trying to compete, but but really nobody's winning. So so what what competition are they even trying to do? I don't know, but uh, whether it's the state, county, city, or whether it's taking advantage of grant programs at the federal level, what whatever we have to do that. There has to be a better way because I'm going to tell you right now, I, I have better internet out here in South Carthage through DTC than I did downtown in Nashville. So I'm sort of the anomaly as far as rural broadband is concerned, but I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones who's just on their last mile part of the grid. There's people, you know, not half a mile away from me who don't have access to it. So whatever, whatever it is, whether it's the state, federal, whatever it is we have to do to, to make it less of a profit motive and more of a people motive. Patty Sizemore is a candidate for the Tennessee State uh, Representative District 40 seat. As we talk about TennCare and the, the access to health care, many people believe that we are missing out because we do not take advantage of some of the opportunities with the federal health program. How do you come down on what needs to be done with TennCare and the expansion of Medicare? Well, you know, Larry, I was just speaking to a friend earlier, and she asked me, you know, Patty, I, I still have this, this rash on me, and they've given me medicine. They've told me that it's going to be okay. It's not gotten any better. Should I go back? Should I go back to the doctor? There's no other country, there's no other modern nation on this earth where that question would even enter into somebody's mind. And we deal with the consequences of that in Tennessee every day. And these are not from people who would like to get a second opinion on, on medical treatment they've already received. These are people who haven't even gotten it in the first place. And since 2014, we have flagrantly let the people of Tennessee down by rejecting billions upon billions and billions of dollars every year. The program would have been fully funded with federal funds for multiple years. <clears throat> and we already would have had the systems in place to help the uh, well over 100,000 Tennesseans and children 
and people struggling in the Medicaid gap to have health coverage during a pandemic. We already would have had it in place. We must expand Medicaid. This block grant idea that the Republicans believe is the best way to approach this, the analogy I use is like giving a college student $15 a month for groceries and saying, you know what, just you're going to have to make it work. It sounds great on paper. Sure, it, it plays into the fiscal responsibility idea, but in reality, it does not work. What are some of the other things that are important to you if you were able to go to Nashville and represent your district? Uh, another thing I sent out on my mailer with number one being expand Medicaid, because that's the most important issue to me, is I see no reason why we, we can't work towards having some form of paid family leave in this state. I, uh, I see immense problems with the way our unemployment system is set up. Uh, we need to overhaul that system. There's people who lose their jobs through no fault of their own, and we've seen this everywhere during the pandemic. And they, they get treated like criminals when they're just trying to get benefits that they've already paid into and benefits that they already deserve. Um, I don't know if you're a college football fan. A lot of people around here are, but we're getting beat by Arkansas, Missouri, and West Virginia when it comes to the minimum wage we pay people. So I, I feel like we could we could do a little bit better than seven twenty five an hour. Uh, I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, recreational marijuana. That that should be. I mean, we should just get out ahead of it, Larry. You know, it, it's already going to happen. So we may as well go ahead and legalize it. Get that tax revenue. Who knows how much rural broadband we could buy with that? But that's just that's just one of many ideas. And uh, I've got a full platform online at, at patty.vote slash voter guide. Uh, but but those, those are uh, some of the key highlights, just focusing on, on health care, helping our workers, and just trying our best to get, get out of this pandemic and uh, and move Tennessee towards the future. If someone walks in to that precinct and is set to cast a vote, why should they vote for Patty Sizemore? Terry Lynn Weaver is my opponent, and I know people always hate this lesser of, of two evils argument. But the reality is that in a Republican supermajority, all she is going to be doing for, for another two-year term is pushing yes, no, or present. There's nothing that she would be adding to the debate whatsoever. She would merely be repeating what is already there. So if you vote for me, my vote will never be the deciding vote in our legislature. But my voice will always be a unique contribution, and it will always help shape the policy of Tennessee in a more comprehensive way. Patty Sizemore, candidate in the Tennessee State Representative race, District 40, to represent you. Patty, thanks for putting your name in the race, and thanks for joining us on Meet the Candidates. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Our countdown to Tuesday night continues from News Talk 94.1 and Light Rock 95.9. And don't forget, next Tuesday night, complete election coverage, both what's happening around the Upper Cumberland and, of course, the national race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Now we turn to the U.S. House race and Democratic candidate Christopher Finley, who wants the chance to represent this area in Washington, D.C. 
Why did you make this decision in your life to make a run at this office? Well, you know, that was kind of a tough one. Um, I hadn't really seen, uh, at least on the Democratic side, uh, candidates that I totally agreed with. I'm probably what you would call an old school Democrat, Joel Evans Democrat, much more moderate in my viewpoints. And uh, and uh, I, I like to think that I'm a reasonable person. And I just I just saw extremes actually on both sides. On the, on the Republican side, I thought that the candidates were much too extreme. And then on the Democratic side, I thought the candidates were basically just the mirror image being much too extreme on that side. And when I would speak to my friends, my neighbors, people I knew, they they seemed to agree with me that they sure would, you know, like to see somebody with much more of a moderate voice, you know, representing them in Congress. And that's kind of one, one of the reasons I ran. Your Facebook page says that I'm running for you and not running for office. What do you mean by that? Well, when you run for office, it's almost like uh, a career uh, move. Uh, you, you start seeing individuals like the former uh, congressperson for this district leaving this district, leaving her seat and running for governor. You know, it's a stepping stone. You see congressmen and women running for Senate. Uh, you know, and, and it's just like, uh, you know, you start out as a stock boy and you work your way up and want to be president of the company. And I'm much more model myself after Joel Evans, who served the district for 30 years and never sought the run for the Senate or vice president or any of these other offices that, that come available. Uh, I think, uh, let's see. Before the last one, I think one of the other previous congressmen uh, wanted to run for governor. And, of course, they didn't get it And both times. And to me, it's much more important that you have someone that is there much more for serving the people rather than using it as a stepping stone to get notoriety and move on up to another political position. What is the story of your life and career to this point? <laughs> well, you know, as I was talking to you before, um, my family moved into this area in the early 1800s. As a matter of fact, I have a great-great-grandfather that uh, on the Hampton side, because I'm from White County and I'm related to the Hamptons around Hampton's Crossroads, uh, he had a very interesting comment about his political career. He was asked to serve and the state house and did and when he came back he was asked to serve it again this is around the 1870s and he said i have never witnessed more foolishness and waste of time in my entire life and i will not uh, accept the nomination nor will i serve again in the state house and you know you hear the complaint that a lot of things don't get done and there's too much confusion and there's a waste of time it's nothing new i mean we're talking over a hundred years and you know i take that but he still served his community by being justice of the peace for many many years and i guess in my family uh 
My father was a banker for 33 years, and he helped people. He was one of those bankers that would do a handshake, and he'd say, you need to get a car, just go out there and get it, and then you bring it in, and we'll, we'll bring in the title, and we'll do the paperwork. Uh, so it's I come from a family of, of service, and, you know, to me, that seems to be lacking nowadays. People are just more out for themselves than they are about, you know, trying to help other people. Um, I do volunteer work and things like that. But when I graduated, of course, I graduated from White County High School, and then I went uh, attended Tennessee Tech, and I got involved in, in, in service organization, service uh, opportunities when I was in a fraternity, and then I graduated from Tech, and I got an accounting degree with a history minor, and I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and worked in accounting. Then I switched over into management and worked in restaurant business for the last 30 years, which has given me an opportunity to speak to people on a daily basis and and get a much more feel for how people think uh, on a day-to-day basis rather than what I'm getting off the news media or things like that. And I guess that kind of naturally progressed to my interest in, in trying to, uh, you know, when I when I inherited the family farm in Sparta and wanted to settle down there, I was looking for other opportunities. And, you know, I'm 64 years old, right on the cusp of regular retirement, but I still got energy and I still, I feel like I still have something to give to the community. So I saw this as an opportunity to do that. Restaurant work is about service. Is serving in the U.S. House, is that about service? Absolutely. They kind of go hand in hand. You know, you cannot be uh, successful in the restaurant business unless you consider what the guest in your restaurant needs. You have to be constantly aware of, of, of their experience they're having in your restaurant. And it's no different in 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 public service and politics, uh, you know, what I've found is, or what I see is, uh, individuals get elected, and then they totally detach themselves from the people that voted them, voted for them. They, they live in these little bubbles up in D.C., and the only people they seem to listen to are their party leadership and, and, the, and the big corporations and the lobbyists, and they just kind of forget about us, the people that put them there. And I've seen many restaurants fail because they try to do top-down to the guests coming in the restaurant rather than being aware of what the guest wants. And you just see the same thing in our political system. You know, How many times have you heard someone say, well, they just forgot about us, got elected, and go up there and just do what they want to do and don't even consider us? And that's why I want to start having town hall meetings again, like some of my predecessors in this district used to do. I used to watch Al Gore do those meetings, and he kept very very close touch with the community by having town hall meetings every weekend. I want to do the same thing. We should be listening to the people. We shouldn't be listening to a select few that have money. There's way too much money in politics right now. And, and you're buying influence. The person that my opponent spent almost $2 million the last election 
to get elected. But has anybody seen him? How many people have even met him? I've even met people at events, the few that I could go to because of the virus. Uh, they go, well, who is our congressman? And I just I laugh, and I say, well, if you don't know who your congressman is, maybe you need to vote for me because at least you met me. So, you know, they do. They do go hand in hand. Why do you think, Christopher Finley, that people are so fed up with Washington? Well, it just goes right back to what I was just uh, talking about. Uh, there's a detachment there. Uh, it's top down. It's not bottom up. See, I believe the grassroots people should, you know, speak their views to their congressmen, to the representatives in government, and not be, you know, well, here it is. We made this decision, and you just, you know, trust me, this is the right one. You know, the people should have a voice, absolutely should have a voice, and people don't feel like they have a voice. I've spoken to too many people that talk about this this imaginary bubble that, that the people that are supposed to serve us live in, and they're, and they're just, you know, and it's, you know, I how many times over my lifetime of 64 years have, you, have, have I heard or felt like, you know, I'm being talked down to or, you know, I can't even, I've tried to meet with some of our current uh, representatives in government and they send a, they send some little aid, and they take a few notes, and then if you ask a question they don't like, they say, well, the interview's ended. Thank you for coming in and giving your input. Well, that's not the way it should be. Uh, you, know, you should be able to, you know, used to, you could go up and see Joel Evans. He'd greet you in his office and bring you in, sitting down and chat with you and find out what is what your concerns were, and then he'd act on it, and he would get back to you. You know, we just don't see that anymore, and I think people are frustrated by that. I know I am. Christopher Finley is one of those running for the U.S. House as we visit with him, meet the candidates. Uh, let's talk about some of the issues. Uh, number one, balancing the budget, getting the debt under control. Uh, as you talk to people, is that something that they talk back to you about, is the need to make that happen? Well, you know, we've we've run up the debt to such an extraordinary degree. I think people are just kind of taking it for granted that it's just going to be there. And, uh, you know, in the mid, mid to late 90s, we attacked the federal budget, and it took a lot of sacrifice. And I think the problem is, and what's going to be difficult about balancing the budget is, are the American people willing to sacrifice? I'll give you a specific instance. Bart Gordon had a town hall meeting after they balanced the budget. And one of the things, they had a $5, they instituted a $5 fee if you wanted to put your boat in at the lake out here at Center Hill. Well, people used to be able to do that for free. And that was one of the little measures, $5, not a lot of money, but people were just incensed about it. And, you know, it's... It's going to take us, not just Congress, it's going to take us to say, hey, I'm willing to pay a $5 fee here. I'm willing to pay a little more here because the the deficit is so huge right now, and we've just been spending, spending, spending. And I, and I don't want to get too technical here, but if you study Keynesian 
economics, you, the whole purpose of a deficit to get you out of a troubled time. Uh, you only run a deficit when things are bad to stimulate the economy. But when the economy's good, you're supposed to pay the deficit down. Well, the economy's been good, but we keep running up the deficit. You know, military spending, you know, uh, services for, for people. It's, it's, there's always some needed area, roads, uh, bridges, infrastructure. There's always going to be a need. And it's just going to take a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice for everyone, everyone, to pull together and say, this is our priority, this is what we need to focus on, and then we work together and get the budget down. Um, but I don't know if we do have that will to do that right now. That's the scary thing on both sides of the aisle as it relates to COVID spending is, as you mentioned, a need, an emergency, but how are we going to pay it off? Exactly. And I don't really have a great answer, except I have the willingness to, you know, have town hall meetings, speak to people about it. What are you willing to do? Are you willing to, to do a little sacrifice here and there uh, so that we can all work together? And, and it's going to take both parties. One party can't take the lead and make the other party look bad. You know, that's got to stop. You know, people have to work together. This this far left, far right, nobody meeting in the middle, it's just got to stop. People are tired of it. And how's that going to stop? The voters have to start sending more moderate voices in instead of these extreme voices that won't talk to each other because they're too busy pandering to their base instead of getting things done. And I know I'm tired of it, and I think everyone else is as well. Your home county has experienced during COVID, uh, I think, something that surprised a lot of folks, and that is that broadband access is not as universal as one might experience. And you've seen it with the White County schools in, in trying to do virtual learning. What role, in your opinion, does Congress and the federal government play in trying to get broadband access to all parts of the Upper Cumberland and really all parts of the nation? Well, my father who was my model, my mentor, uh, a thoughtful and, and great man. I asked him one time, we were driving around in, in Lost Creek, because I used to love to travel. I used to love to drive back in there because it's so beautiful. And we were talking one day, and I, it came into my mind. I said, what was it like in the Depression? You know, you, you were living here then after being in Detroit, and, and the Depression hit, and you moved back to Tennessee. And he goes, well, there weren't roads. Uh, you know, we all didn't have much, you know, but the, that was the bad side. But the good side was we were all even. Everybody was in the same boat. And if you were walking down the side of the road and needed a ride, somebody would pick you up. And, um, you know, and then the, the WPA came in and roads were being improved. There was, like I said before, in a time of crisis, you spend money. And money poured into the South, which is desperately needed for the, for, since the war between the states. And TVA came in. And TVA changed this entire region. All of a sudden, we had access to inexpensive electricity. And broadband is the electricity of this century. And it's such a big task that if we wait for, you know, for 
private business, the big corporations don't care about rural broadband. There's no profit in it. So that's the time that the government has to come in and, you know, and I've heard people say, well, you know, people should just move away. And I said, people can't move away. You know, people own these lands, their farms, and that's their homes. So we've got to, we've got to, as a society, say, hey, we're going to go in here. We're going to establish broadband because it's going to help our education, which helps our community, which helps our country. And in, in, and if you don't see the long-term, you know, opportunities there, then you're being very short-sighted. Christopher Finley, when you talk to people beyond the fact that they're upset about their government being taken away from them, what are the other issues that people are talking to you about? Well, those are those are some of the basic issues, uh, you know. But everybody always asks me about you know gun control, and I laugh and I say, "Well, listen, we're not you know that's been decided by the Supreme Court. We're not going to." We're not going to take away your guns, and, uh, you know, everyone should have a right to protect themselves. You know, and I kind of laugh, and I said, but, you know, do you have to draw the line at a bazooka? You know, there comes a time when, you know, the military needs their weapons, and civilians need to have a reasonable, reasonable uh, supply of guns to protect themselves and to go out hunting. I mean... I'd get out of high school and I'd walk down and get in my car and there'd be all these pickup trucks and they all had rifles in the, in the rifle racks. And now you don't have that now because, you know, because of a few people that have gone a little off the, off their kilter and now everybody's scared. You know, I, I promote gun safety, you know, I can promote reasonable behavior and, and sadly, you know, I tell people all the time when they're upset about a certain law or certain regulation, I said, listen, I would love for there not to be stoplights, but if you didn't have stoplights, people would be running through these intersections like crazy and and, and hitting each other. Uh, I, I looked at old photographs of, of downtown Nashville, and I couldn't figure out what the life of me was. There were these pillars on every street corner. And it turns out that back in the old days, when you had wagons, people who would drive these wagons would cut corners, and they were running over civilians, you know, people walking on the side of the street. So they had to put, you know, these big pillars to keep the wagons from cutting corners too short. See, there's always somebody wanting to cut a corner. And we wouldn't have all these laws and regulations if it wasn't for somebody cutting a corner. I learned that in accounting. The professor said, well, you wouldn't be learning all these rules if it wasn't for some smart aleck trying to bend the rule, you know, or do something wrong, so we have to institute a rule. So, you know, the most of the thing that I that I hear about is, is just that, government regulation. And I try to explain, I said, you know, I would love for there not to be any regulation whatsoever, that we just do what we wish and we, and, and we keep our good Christian values and not harm people. But there's always someone that's always going to break that, break that bond that we have between one another, and that's why we have to have these these regulations. And I think more than anything else, you know, we need to have a, a civil conversation about why things are being done, rather than it just being thrust upon people and they getting and get themselves upset. 
Finally, Christopher Finley, when someone walks uh, into their election precincts in a couple of days and casts a ballot, why should they consider you? Well, I think all the reasons that I've already discussed is that I'm a reasonable individual, and something that has been severely lacking is accountability. Uh, You should be held accountable if you're serving in office. And how do you do that? You have town hall meetings. So my my core promise to anyone that if you want an accountable individual serving you in Congress, then vote for me because as soon as this COVID dies down, I will be having town hall meetings throughout the district and let people, veterans, if you've got a problem with the VA, uh, uh, anyone that's got problems with their Social Security, uh, any issue that you have with the federal government, I will make myself accessible. And not only will I be there, I will spend my time with you and we'll work together to solve any problem that you have. So that's what I offer, and uh, and respectfully, I ask for, for your vote to do those things, and we can work together and make this country even greater than it is already. For complete coverage of Election 2020 and the news that matters to you, follow News Talk 94.1 on Facebook and Twitter. If you missed any part of tonight's interviews with Patty Sizemore, Terry Lynn Weaver, or Christopher Finley, they are available on our website, Newstalk941.com or Lightrock959.com.